Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hi. A quick note before today's show to assure you that, like everyone, we are paying very close attention to the explosions of police violence against black people and protesters last week. We are watching how police violence is being visited upon journalists themselves in ways that, frankly, I've never seen before. And we are carefully tracking how the Canadian media is covering all of this here. Today's show is not about that. Thursday's show, Shortcuts, will be. Sandy Hudson, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Toronto, has agreed to co-host that episode with me and to talk about all of this and about her experience with CBC Radio. So to those of you who have been sending us examples of media coverage that you think we should know about or talk about, thank you. Please keep it coming and tune in Thursday. Okay, here's today's show. So there's this recent Zoom sesh hosted by the House of Commons Standing Committee on Finance. They provided a fun forum for some select friends of Parliament to plead their case for emergency pandemic funding. Guess who showed up? Uh, turning then to uh, the uh, Globe and Mail, 
Mr. Crowley, uh, publisher, president, and CEO. Hello, thank you for uh, asking me to speak today. And uh, I've been publisher and CEO of the Globe for the last 21 years. I'm also co-chair of Canadian Press, so I'm wearing two hats today. The Globe is privately held by Woodbridge, which is the holding company for the Thompson family. They've owned media since the early days of Roy Thompson in the 1930s. And I worked for him and his son, Ken, in the UK uh, when they owned some of the leading titles there. Now the third generation in the shape of David Thompson, uh, chairman, is in charge. Yeah, I guess so. That's true. Uh, Media is how the Thompsons became the richest family in Canada. But these days, they make a lot more money from things like tracking undocumented immigrants and, and, and selling the data to ICE. Trump's Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, Thomson Reuters stock has actually more than doubled during the newspaper crisis. So while it's true that the Globe and Mail might be losing money, its owners are doing better than exactly everybody else in this whole country. Back to you, Philip. And the Thompsons have an enduring belief in the value of journalism that makes a difference. They own the Globe because they think it can make a contribution to Canada. Oh, that's interesting. The Globe is making a contribution to us. But aren't you here asking us to make a contribution to the Globe? One common factor across all those decades is the principle of editorial independence is respected. Phil, you can't brag about your independence while you're asking for an allowance. You're doing this wrong. We are one of a small number of publishers around the world who have transitioned successfully to a business model that's based on premium content. So we've been cutting costs over the last few months to minimize layoffs. If your business model is so successful, then why are you laying people off at all? The newspaper industry is disappointed by the small amount of money spent so far by the federal governments from its 30 million COVID-19 awareness campaign. Okay, here we go. So far, the Globe has received only 81,000 out of that 30 million. Wow. And I've suggested schemes to Heritage, like a rebate on our printing costs. (laughs) Yes, that does sound like a scheme. You want the government to subsidize your printing press? Have you a horse and buggy concern that is in similar need, sir? You are no doubt aware that all Canada's major publishers signed an open letter earlier this month calling on Ottawa to address the inherent unfairness of a system where the global platforms enjoy exemption from sales tax in Canada while paying nothing for the journalism content that they use. I suggest it's time you pay urgent attention to these inequities. Thank you for listening, and I'm happy to answer questions later. Well, I need a bath after that. It's not the begging, per se, or or even his anger or sense of entitlement. It's the bullshit. The rich are in need. Dependence is independence. Failure is success. It's just unseemly for news people to spin, to to misrepresent, to, to bullshit the public. But that is what this process has required. The newspaper bailout could only have happened through bullshit. Bullshit about who the news bailout is for, who it isn't for, and what it will accomplish. It was supposed to be for us, for news readers, the people. It was for cities and towns without reporters. It was for the very health of our democracy. 
It wasn't for Paul Godfrey or for the Thompsons or for the Irvings. It wasn't for one specific dying industry. That's what they said. And that stuff is still right there on the government's website. Look at the uh, the Local Journalism Initiative's website. Quote, the Local Journalism Initiative supports civic journalism that covers the diverse needs of underserved communities across Canada. Now, that is basically a description of the digital news site, The Sprawl, which popped up to cover the municipal election in Calgary when it was going painfully underreported by Legacy Media. The Sprawl has only grown since then and could actually use some more seed money to expand on their success. They wanted to put that money right into hiring a new reporter. But The Sprawl got nothing from the bailout. The group that was tasked to hand out millions of newspaper bailout money, that group being Canada's newspaper lobby, they shut out the sprawl completely. The blog for Harvard University's news lab, Neiman, asked that lobby group, why? Why did you shut out the sprawl? That group's spokesman replied that the local journalism initiative is a support program for the news industry. I guess he never read the government's website. He must have also missed it when the Heritage Ministry said that the government will not bail out industry models that are no longer viable. Rather, we will focus our efforts on supporting innovation, experimentation, and transition to digital. Because that lobby group spokesman also told Neiman, quote, this is not a program for startups or to help entrepreneurs start a new business. He even said, we do not want to introduce new competition into already struggling markets. So there it is. I mean, at least he's not bullshitting. They finally admit it. The bailout is opposed to competition. It's not for entrepreneurs or for innovators. It's not for news readers. It's for newspapers and their publishers. Now, look, most Canadians don't even care about the bailout. It is barely covered by the newspapers here who are benefiting from it. So it must have come as a big surprise when those remarks from the newspaper lobby kicked up a small firestorm among some big names in American journalism. Because you see, the U.S. right now is right where we were a few years ago. The pandemic is destroying their papers by the dozen. It's being called an extinction event. That's got the American public scared that there might soon be no newspapers. And that fear has opened the door for some U.S. publishers to start talking seriously about seeking government help. Which in turn has free press advocates in the U.S. screaming, no, do not go down that path. Just look at what's happening in Canada, where their subsidy program has been captured all but entirely by the legacy newspaper industry, and it has done nothing to stem layoffs or closures. Or look what's happening in Britain, where Boris Johnson threatens to cut off the BBC's funding based on whether or not he feels like they've been fair to him lately. Or you know what? Americans can look right at their own country, where Trump just signed an executive order against Twitter because he didn't like the fact that they fact-checked him. I mean, do they really want to give that president financial control over the press? Today, I'm going to talk to one of the people raising those alarms. Professor Jeff Jarvis of the Craig Newmark School of Journalism at the City University of New York. And that conversation is going to lead me to some interesting other conversations. Wait for it. 
This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Brittany Mitchell-Moore, Liza Balkin, Nancy Cantu, Trevor DeBoer, Stephanie Pylon, Mark Lackey, Chris Millard, and Wendy Reed. My name is Wendy Reed. I am from Toronto, and I'm a software tester at a software company. I support Canada Land because as much as I love following the news, I often find the Canadian outlets only talk about international news and it's hard to find out about local issues and so Candleland fills that gap for me. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away, but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Can you tell me who you are and what you do? I'm Jeff Jarvis. I am the Leonard Tal Professor of Journalism Innovation at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. Too long title. Jeff, we have been uh, involved in this conversation for years now in Canada about government funding for news, government bailing out news. But that conversation seems to be suddenly urgent in the U.S. Can you get us up to speed as to what's going on and why that's being seriously considered now? Because the house is burning and COVID threw gunpowder on the fire. And I think we are seeing a future of journalism in the ashes. And... In our dear field, our colleagues tend to look for messiahs, but most of them so far, all of them so far, have turned out to be false messiahs, right? Podcasts were going to save us, uh, which might. Tablets were going to save us, uh, certainly in Montreal. All kinds of new advertising structures, paywalls, and so on. And none of that has saved us. And so I think as a a rescue of last resort, some are considering government funding for media, which gives me hives. 
it scares me because of two words in this country, Donald Trump, of course. And my British friends have always said, well, no, 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 no. There's the BBC. That's a wonderful model that works there. But there's two words to answer to them now. And that's Boris Johnson and the kind of pressure he has put on uh, media as a result of the power that he has now over it. So I understand certainly the desire and there are calls in the U.S. to have uh, emergency funding. It is possible, but it's fraught with danger. You bring up some examples uh, outside of America. I mean, America might be a singular case because I can't think of any other country that that is as fierce in independence of the press and, and protecting that independence. But as you say, the house is on fire. And now with coronavirus, I don't know where you're at. I think we've lost about 50 newspapers in a matter of, of weeks, really. Certainly, you can understand business owners who just want to get through this any way they can, they're going to clutch at whatever they can get, right? Yeah, I certainly can understand that grasping for the life preserver, but I don't think it's going to be a very good life preserver. Number one, there just isn't enough money to pay for all the journals that we need, whether from government or from charity. We need to be a sustainable enterprise in the marketplace for the most part. Not-for-profit journalism is a wonderful contributor to the ecosystem, but it can't be all and government-supported media is a problem. So, I, yeah, I, I certainly get it. But the other problem is, as you put in your reporting on what's happening in Canada, is that the money tends to go to the old legacy players that have the political capital. And I'm not sure that's the best place to send the money. Should the money be going to the hedge fund owners of Post Media? Should it be going to Rupert Murdoch in Australia? Should it be going to the companies that in great measure have not innovated and not adapted to a new reality? Or should it be going to new little sprouts that will grow up out of the ashes? Well, you seem to be familiar with what's been happening here. And I wonder if Canada is something of a cautionary tale as the U.S. press contemplates this. I think so. And I, sh and I should give you a disclosure or perhaps confession uh, that I was for not very long on the digital advisory board for Post Media. Uh, that and I'm a Canadophile and have tried to move to Canada a couple of times. So yes, I follow uh, your media structure with great interest, uh, but I do think it is a cautionary tale. So we have a few examples of what happens in the US. Um, in New Jersey, where I live, the the governor sold our public broadcasting licenses to the FCC. Long, complicated story. I shall spare you the details, but for a considerable amount of money. And then there was an effort to get some of that money devoted to the media ecosystem in New Jersey. Um, governor Murphy agreed. The legislature agreed. It looked fine. The money still hasn't been paid. Uh, and the problem in that is the same problem you see in Canada, which is who decides who gets the money. In New Jersey, they established four universities and a big complicated board, and it's going to be political and difficult. You have a legacy organization in Canada essentially having a role in this. And so there is a, a built-in prejudice as to where the funds will go and for what. That's a problem. In New York City, we have a center for community media at our school, and Graciela Moshkovsky, who heads it, is brilliant. I was just talking to her, to her this morning about this very topic. And uh, in New York City, local government advertising 
is a source of rescue to publications. So that's a good thing. And we've always had government advertising. Uh, but again, who gets it and who doesn't and who decides are knotty issues. I fear government interference. I'm doing a lot of research now on the early days of print and uh, various tools, whether they were licensing or whether they were subsidy, giveaway or takeaway, were efforts to control the press. So this is a tool of control. And the legacy players who were threatened by the net have joined with the legacy players of government and other institutions who were threatened by the net. And they've passed a whole slew of legislation in Europe, the Leistungsschutzrecht and Ancillary Copyright Law, the Copyright Directive Articles 15 and 17, uh, the uh, Online Harms Report in the UK. These are all efforts to try to control this future. So you're quite right. It's quite, quite prescient that, that, that in this case, a bucket of money arrives and it's not the negative side of control. It's the positive side of control as we will reward certain players. And, and I just constantly worry about that. But, but even beyond that, if you look at something like the discourse, which I admire, they're trying to reinvent journalism. They are a sprout from the ash. They're trying to rethink what conversation looks like. That's what I would want to support is that kind of innovation and um, disruption. But that's exactly what this fund doesn't want to support. Well, yeah, and Erin also said that she had to curtail some of the innovative aspects of the discourse in order to get the money, which is an interesting uh, effect of this. That that it uh, it's it's a level of that's frightening. That is really truly frightening. That is an industry not just trying to protect its past and stop competitors. That's them trying to stop innovation. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I didn't realize that in full when you, when you just said it that clearly. That's appalling. When you were on Post Media's Digital Advisory Board, what sense did you get as to whether or not this was a project that was possible? You know, I once spoke to somebody who similarly uh, was was brought in as a consultant to uh, legacy institutions and uh, was there to help them become digital, uh, you know, not be disrupted and become digitally viable. And he said, look, you know, I'll cash their checks and I'll try to help them in earnest, but no dinosaur ever gave birth to a mammal. And secretly, <laughs> oh, I want to steal that line. <laughs> secretly, he felt like this is an impossible task. You, they, they won't be able to do that. I give Post Media and others a lot of hell for bad decisions they've made, and 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 Toronto Star for their tablet fixation. Was there some point where they could have done it? Was it possible to have done it, or was the fix always in? Was the was the their fate always going to be that uh, 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 they're, they're dinosaurs in a world of mammals? Great question, which is how a professor buys time to come up with an answer. Um, I don't know. I, I think that history will have to decide that. I go back and forth regularly on whether or not to give up on the legacy players. Uh, and I haven't given up on them. I've tried to work with various of them. And I have a, I have a view of a strategy of a community-based world where publications uh, learn how to convene and serve communities and that that's the skill that that becomes valuable and that they sell. It's unproven. I don't know that it would work, but I don't see the mass media structure we have as continuing to work. I see, of course, there are 
glimmers of innovation in old media companies. I don't mean to dismiss everything, but inevitably it returns to the house is on fire. Indeed, a managing editor at a major U.S. paper said this to me and his staff as I was trying to start to work with them before they all got laid off. He said, listen, we have two houses. One's on fire. And the other one is the one Jarvis wants us to build. And frankly, he doesn't have blueprints even, but he has some ideas. But the problem is that the publisher comes down every day and says, traffic's down or ad rates are down. Get me more traffic. Throw more cats on the fire. And we have no time to work in this Jarvis house, this other thing, this relationship thing, as good as that might sound. And I think that's basically where they are. They don't have the time to innovate. In the U.S. now, basically all of our major newspaper chains are owned either by or owned or controlled either by hedge funds or by families who are exhausted with the losses. So there's going to be no investment in innovation that is going to come from them. Now, meanwhile, Google and Facebook are trying to give money to innovation, but that too has political implications and it often goes to some of these big old companies that may not know how to innovate. What we need is the invention of entirely new structures of journalism with entirely new presumptions for an entirely new reality. So no, I see no birthing of mammals coming out of the dinosaurs. When the government interferes with the press in any way that's conceived of as uh, censorious or negative or trying to withhold information, we know how to respond to that. And Americans certainly know how to respond to that. This is a different kind of interference, and it's coming in the form of a gift. When we talk about the independence of the press, I can't think of anything that could interfere with that more than making the press dependent. You, you might argue that that's the destruction of the independent press to make them permanently dependent. But it's coming with a bow wrapped around it. And it's coming at a time when I think a lot of people would welcome anything that just keeps the news coming because we need it so urgently. Do you think that in America, this will ever be an acceptable idea? No, I don't think there, I don't think there will be. Um, I think that we have to factor in the polls of late that show low trust in American journalism and news media. I think we have to factor in the fact that we're spending trillions of dollars trying to keep people fed right now versus supporting an industry that you and I love and care about and value. But I don't think that the that the public necessarily will. When, when you started, I, I, if this were a video podcast, I'd be you, you'd see me nodding my head at what you're saying. I agree that the um, the carrot and the stick are both means of control. And I worry greatly about that. If you go, uh, go back to the early days of American newspapers, the government subsidy that occurred was free distribution uh, or discounted distribution in, in the Postal Service. When Benjamin Franklin started his paper in Philadelphia, the postmaster was the publisher of the competitor and he wouldn't distribute Franklin's paper. And then the postmaster got in trouble with the overall postmaster general. The colonies lost his gig and the gig was given to Franklin. And Franklin was ordered by the postmaster general not to distribute the former postmaster's paper. So, you know, we see the subsidy can be used as a political tool. So mm -hmm. for government to take an active role in speech, I'm allergic to, but for government to particularly take an active role 
in journalism should offend every journalist because we are there to cover them. And I've seen in Australia and I've seen in Germany the, the problem of media companies lobbying to get resources or to get legislation that hurts competitors in their markets. And I think we see it in our case with Rupert Murdoch. He is using every bit of his clout to try to get legislators to hurt Google. Okay, let's leave that one there with with Rupert Murdoch pushing the U.S. government not for public subsidies, but for legislation that hurts Google. This is where the ball has bounced, and our billionaire press barons here in Canada, they're following it along. You heard Philip Crawley allude to that earlier when he mentioned the global platforms that pay nothing for the news content that they exploit. What he was talking about, what all of the legacy newspaper publishers are increasingly talking about, is the link tax. And this really relates to, I think, what is the core bullshit of the newspaper bailout. That BS being that it will actually work. It won't. Because even if they can convince the public to swallow the whole thing, and you know what? I think a lot of people do. Whatever problems people may have with the idea of taxpayer-supported news, at least it will save the newspaper industry. But it won't. And our newspaper publishers know that because even if you add up the bailouts, wage subsidies and its local reporter fund, and you add to that the emergency ad spending, both provincial and federal and the proposed printing press subsidy that Crawley wants and his other pitch for a Canadian press licensing subsidy, even if you put all of that together, it still isn't enough to save this fading industry. And that is why they've moved on to this new solution, the link tax. Because you know who does have enough money to refund this fading industry and put them back at the scale to which they've become accustomed? Google and Facebook. And so France has new legislation forcing Google to pay a tax or perhaps a forced license every time that Google or Facebook link off to a news story and scrape a summary sentence or two. Newspaper publishers around the world are glomming onto this idea. Google and Facebook, after all, are much more attractive sugar daddies than the government. Deeper pockets, less conflict of interest. But it's not that simple. In fact, according to my next guest, the results could be devastating. Not because of how much this could hurt Google or Facebook, but because of how much it will help them. Novelist and activist Cory Doctorow believes that the link tax is nothing short of a massive gift to the tech giants. I reached him in his home in Burbank, California, to ask him why. Look, the first preference of every monopolist is to get to make their own rules. The second preference of every monopolist is to become a regulated monopoly. That is to say, to be subjected to rules that only a monopolist could be able to obey, which ensures that no one else can ever enter the market and challenge the monopolist. And so that's the gift, right? Give us this uh, amount of money which, you know, for Google is like half of the kombucha budget for the Zurich office. And we will ensure that no one can enter the market because it will be too expensive. As you've put it elsewhere, the tax becomes a license. Let me try putting it this way. The link tax is an attempt to fix big tech. What we really need to do is fix the internet. And these are incompatible goals because fixing big tech involves cementing its role in the internet 
by creating a bunch of standards for how firms have to conduct themselves online that only the very largest firms can afford, which means that you don't get new entrants. We have to do one or the other. Turning Facebook into Ma Bell or Bell Canada or, or any other kind of regulated statement, you know, quasi-statementopoly does not bode well for the news business. I mean, they wouldn't be a crown corporation, which at least is notionally subject to some kind of democratic oversight and control. They would be a regulated private monopoly that could still have enormous leeway and still be very opaque to us, to to the people who've come to depend on them. But the regulations that were meant to keep them from being too destructive would ensure that they never had to fear a competitor, which would mean that they would be increasingly hard to regulate over time. So my goal is to fix the internet. So how do you do that? So I think what you've got to do is is go back to the pre-Reagan and Mulroney idea of how companies are allowed to grow. So when companies weren't allowed to grow by buying their nascent competitors or merging with big competitors or creating vertical monopolies, they had to grow by inventing stuff. You know, back in the pre-Reagan Mulroney era, corporate R&D was a huge piece of the puzzle. They would invent so many products, many of which they never figured out how to productize and that other people went ahead and made good on, like uh, Xerox Park inventing the graphic user interface or AT&T inventing the transistor or AT&T inventing Unix. And what that meant was that instead of firms retaining their earnings or delivering them to shareholders and dividends, they would have to devote those earnings to inventing cool, interesting products that made the whole world better They had to be making things companies, not buying things companies. How do you force them to do that? You prohibit them from buying nascent competitors, merging with major competitors, or having vertical monopolies. And where they have already established those, you break them up. And if breaking them up takes 20 years and $20 billion, then all that is is an example to everybody else who you're not yet breaking up about what is in store for them if they don't behave themselves. Because while I don't think that making a bunch of complicated rules for Facebook is going to make Facebook behave itself. I think being terrified that someone is going to show up and drag them up and down the 401 for the next 20 years behind the uh, antitrust bus is really going to stay their hand. You know, Bill Gates last year, he went to a Wall Street Journal conference and he said, um, the reason we missed Android, the reason we didn't buy Android is we were distracted by the antitrust action of the DOJ, which if you'll recall, was largely unsuccessful. Except The Android acquisition by Google was seven years after the antitrust action. And I don't think he was lying or misstating the truth. I think what he meant was seven years after the antitrust debacle that Microsoft was dragged through, they were so gutted of that predatory sociopathic instinct Mm -hmm. that anyone in the boardroom who said, hey, you know what we should do? We should grow by creating vertical monopolies by buying all the promising startups was shouted down, not least because, you know, one of the lowest moments of the antitrust action for Bill Gates personally was when they put him on the stand and videotaped it and released it. And he's just terrible. Like he's Clearly, he's neurotypical and and he's uh, doing all these sort of self-soothing techniques. He's rocking and he's stimming and stuff. And he just, it was humiliating for him. I mean, really humiliating. And I think that just taking these billionaire captains of industry and cutting them down to size and making it personal and making it hard for their companies to get anything done because they're being forced to pay for their past sins 
is the way that you discipline the sector so that competitors can come in and do the real work of disciplining the sector, which is, you know, the real thing that they should be afraid of is not regulators. It's their customers going somewhere else that has a better service. Right now, they don't have to worry about that because they don't have customers. They have hostages. We need to restore an Internet in which businesses have customers whom they try to please. Okay, let's leave that there, because though Corey is always good at getting me all riled up, he is passionate and persuasive. He may be too much of a big picture guy for a, uh, a simple mind like mine to follow. I want to know what will happen to the news business tomorrow if we break up Google and Facebook today. So that's what I asked today's final guest, Professor Emily Bell, who runs the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia Journalism School in New York. Emily, what would it mean for the news business if Google and Facebook were actually to be broken up? It means that ideally you would have much more competition in the market. So at the moment you have two companies that totally dominate the advertising landscape. Uh, so effectively there isn't a lot of room um, for anybody else to compete when it comes to picking up ads on particularly not on 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 mobile phones and this is really what has undermined um, the entirety of the news industry it's not the disappearance of every support mechanism it's the disappearance of advertising so let's let's assume that you take instagram out of facebook it's possible then that publishers could still have to distribute their um, material through third-party platforms, but maybe if you had a more competitive advertising market, then the people who are on those platforms might benefit from that. They may see uh, greater revenue coming from that advertising market. It wouldn't just be absolutely non-competitive, the cheapest advertising out there. And that's kind of what we had for 10 years between 2000 and 2010. So, you know, we had online advertising and publishers could compete. Um, it wasn't really until 2012, 2013 that this roll-up of um, all ad revenues started to seriously kind of focus just on those two companies. So, so I think it would introduce competition and publishers might benefit from that. You know... It, it, it seems like Facebook and Google are machines that are built so expertly for the sole purpose of slicing and dicing demographics into uh, advertisable units. And the newspaper model of advertising, which is, I guess, to amass a large audience of all sorts of different kinds of people to read about what's happening in the world. And then, oh, by the way, here's a product that you might buy. It feels archaic. And I, I don't know if we're ever going to go back to a time when even if advertisers have that option, it's just not going to be the consortium of newspaper publishers. It's hard for me to imagine them operating as sophisticated an advertising platform right. as Facebook or Google. Right. Yeah. And this is exactly the point. So when you said to me, what would, what would, benefit the publishers you know platform competition might benefit the publishers but i use might because exactly as you say it depends on the ability really of competition in the advertising market to raise prices for advertisers and make it possible for smaller units to compete the amount of data that you need to gather uh, to target advertising and the other thing is you know we think of 
Facebook as a social media company and we think of uh, Google as a search company, but they are both advertising companies. That is where pretty much 100% of their revenue comes from at the moment. So the idea that if you're a news, if it, let, let's say you're a local newspaper or you're a, pe- you're a paper or a, a news provider in a city of about 100,000 people, the amount of data that you would have to aggregate on your audiences to actually kind of compete with data aggregation sites or advertising platforms like Google or Facebook, even at a smaller scale, is going to be beyond uh, most publishers. It's also, there's a big question about whether or not you actually want to do that. You know, there is there is a fundamental difference between building trust and reporting news and thinking about your audience not as a product. Uh, there's a fundamental difference between that and being, you know, an all-out digital marketing or advertising uh, property. And there's a reason why legacy news organizations have a hard line, generally speaking, between their advertising activities and their editorial activities. So to compete in the new market, as you say, Jesse, that's not antiquated, to some extent, those distinctions have to disappear. And if those distinctions disappear, then lots of other things disappear too, like the trust of your audience that what you're telling them um, is not to do with targeting or making money, but it's to do with actually serving their information needs. So, So I think that, you know, kind of there is a big shift here, which has already taken place and which is going to be very hard to undo. If Well, I don't think you can undo it because I don't think advertising can really support free media in the same way that, that it has done for 150 years. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because I wonder if, you know, we're not wasting a crisis. It seems like the only good thing that's come out of the collapse of the business is that it has returned a small handful of, you know, very short list of very big news organizations such as the New York Times and then created a business model for tiny outfits like mine to kind of reimagine the relationship so that the, the primary revenue source is the audience itself who are making a conscious and informed opt-in decision to simply pay journalists to do journalism as opposed to being kind of a byproduct where their attention gets resold. And when the newspapers are clamoring to get back into the business of amassing audiences and selling them off to advertisers. You know, here in, in Canada, the, uh, the Toronto Star chain, their new digital um, strategy of recent years has been to kind of replicate Facebook, which always sounded kind of quaint to me, the idea that the Toronto Star would be able to make its own little mini Facebook. It seemed to me right. to be moving in the, exactly the opposite direction um, of, of what we finally can do, which is actually having a straight deal with uh, with the right. newsreader. So I, I, I'm not sure where the Google and Facebook question, you know, fit in. It's, it's sort of like um, the question of returning to manufacturing jobs, unionized manufacturing labor in Trump's America. It ain't, it ain't going to happen. I don't think we ever right. are going to go back to that to that, that ad driven news business. Right. Now, I think you're right that we're not going to go back to it. And for all the reasons that you've just laid out there, this is where I feel it like really does intersect with the Google and Facebook question, which is, you know, we think about this as a discrete sort of market operation. So in other words, 
Google and Facebook are just like any other company in a market. But the market that they're in is is so wide, it's so broad, and it's about human creativity, it's about commercial connection, it's about the distribution of news, it's about all of these things. The way that the advertising market has changed, you could argue, well, it's not Google and Facebook's fault. They've just done what those companies do, is that we just can't support, for instance, reporting at local level. In the same way that the gig economy means that industrial jobs are not coming back to heartland America, but that doesn't change the fact that you now have communities in in parts of America that are really economically adrift from any economic growth, that, you know, there is much greater inequality than there used to be, that there isn't kind of a healthcare system that works. So, So... Part of this is not just tackling how do we solve propping up dysfunctional or out-of-date publishing systems. Part of this is about how do we have the society we want to have and what part do we think information services and journalism plays in that and do we want to rebuild it or maintain it Um, and how are we going to do that? I'm sorry, those are really big questions. (laughs) Well, you're not the first person I've spoken to on this episode who said that in trying to fix the news system, really what you're talking about is what kind of a world do you want to live in and how how should we be reforming the internet or society itself? You know, it's hard for me to find a practical bottom line when it comes to the idea of, of breaking up Google and Facebook and how that applies to me or to the success stories like the New York Times who really just use Google and Facebook as a way to get traffic and, and drive subscriptions. But when I think about things like Spotify, I podcast on the open internet. It gets indexed by whoever, you know, be it Apple Podcasts or or whatever podcatching app cares to index my RSS feed. But Spotify is increasingly gobbling up podcasters to offer exclusive content to their platform. Apple could decide tomorrow that right. uh, they're, they're going to do the same thing. And, uh, you know, maybe we make the cut and, every, you know, or maybe we don't. But we, we do rely on the open internet to yep. distribute our content. And the fact that Spotify is both distributing and producing content and running an ad network is concerning. Yep. It feels more tangible for me to think about antitrust in my industry than theirs. Sure. Yeah, but I think that's right, which is they're just too damn big. Do they have too much power in the market? Yes, they do. Is that healthy? No, it isn't. So whatever happens to the news industry as a byproduct of that, we're starting from the position that this is an unprecedented dominance and you're never going to have plurality, which is one of the things that most regulated markets, so Canada being one, where I'm from, the UK being another, has always said, you know, we want plurality in how our um, media and communication systems operate. Google and Facebook are erasing that. You know, Amazon is erasing that. Um, and antitrust has not caught up with it because it doesn't, the, uh, the, the traditional format of antitrust is to say, how is the consumer, the person who buys, losing out? And the answer is they're not really losing out, but how are they losing out as a citizen is in many, many, many different ways. And, and plurality and control are, are, are two of those ways. So, so I agree with you, which is, yes, you know, kind of, they are too damn big. Um, breaking them up may or may not have a directly beneficial impact on 
the news business, but we may have to do something else to fix the news business. Antitrust will not be enough alone, but it doesn't matter. Antitrust should still be pursued for all the reasons of societal benefit that we've always thought was the case and that for some reason has just been abandoned um, when it comes to big tech. They're just too damn big. Too damn big. That's your Canada Land. If you like a podcast, support a podcast. Uh, click on the link in your show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. That's how we make this stuff. When you sign up to support us for five bucks a month, it takes you just a few seconds. It's like a coffee. Come on. And uh, you'll get ad-free podcasts and other goodies. Check it out. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadalandshow.com. And there's a new episode of Oppo up this week. Do you want to know uh, the ins and outs of this Meng decision in in Vancouver? Uh, Because it's kind of launching us into God knows what sort of Cold War scenario. I'm terrified. I need a guide. And Oppo has you covered. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.